Well, I'm not preaching this morning. Uh, Trevor, Trevor Brisbane is. Trevor, come on forward at this time. Trevor and Marisol, his wife, have, and their three children have been members of our community for what, about the last year and a half? Yeah. Around right about there. And um, Trevor is a pastor from Toronto who moved here about a year and a half, year and a half ago, two years ago, something, something like that. Okay. Uh, to study uh, at Claremont uh, School of Theology. He's getting his doctorate in ministry. And so this is the final installment today of our affirmation series, and I asked Trevor if he would share about something called process theology. Um, process theology is, well, obviously he'll explain it, but I wanted to say at the top here, we don't really have a particular doctrine here at Central other than the doctrine of love. For those of you who have been here for a while, you've recognized that on our website there is no, you know, what we believe tab, right? We are a Christian church, but we embrace Christ and Christianity at a very deep level, meaning we, we try to get down to what it's really all about, this idea of what does it mean to, you know, be religious, to care for the widow and the orphan, right? This idea of embracing love and empathy and compassion. This is Christ. This is Christianity. But that often quite means that we are very, we hold on to our theology, our metaphysics and doctrine here very lightly, even though we participate in the sacraments and these kinds of things. But today I wanted to give an opportunity for Trevor, who's kind of an expert, I'm going to call you an expert in process theology, to share a, um, an under, a metaphysics, a doctrine, if you will, that I think is actually um, very helpful and worth affirming. Again, this isn't like Central's doctrine. I don't want I'm setting this up yeah. this morning. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm trying to like say, I'm not having him teach us because we're trying to push this on you. Be like, this is what you have to believe if you go here. This is, I think, a very helpful way to think of God, a very helpful way to think of spirituality. And there's some things here that we can affirm. And that's why I wanted to include it in this series. And so that's who Trevor is. That's why he's speaking today. And so thanks, brother. I'll let you yeah. take it away. Yeah, um, I am a Canadian in exile. And I know the sort of talk in the last, what, 15 days or whatever it's been, is of everybody wants to move to Canada. But, you know, just to be honest, there is something about it. It doesn't matter how bad your day is. If you live here, you, you wake up every morning in Southern California. You open the door to palm trees and those hills, and even on the worst day, there's something about this corner of the world that says it's going to be okay. So we are here because um, I pastored one Baptist church for 15 years, and um, as my wife likes to say, it finally became glaringly obvious that I suck at being a Baptist. It's not a bad thing, it's not a bad thing at all. So, so we came here where I'm pursuing my, my doctorate at Claremont School of Theology, and it's been this, this wonderful season of constructing a Christian faith for me. One that's defined by things like inclusion and hope and potentiality and mutuality and love and grace and nonviolence. And I'm just going to be honest with you, Central has, Central Ave, this church has been one of the great oases for us in this season. We have found just, you know, we, we believe, again, in church. We believe that this is just a place where we can really think through things that matter. We have found not just my wife Marisol and I, but our three kids as well. I mean, you guys are our people. So peace to you and thank you. Another part of that has been, um, has been this thing called process theology. 
And um, just even as I was listening into um, the announcements and the prayer time, it kind of felt like I leaned over to Marisol and I just said, like, I, I don't need to proclaim gospel. I mean, just our announcements and our prayer time in this church, in this community, it, it's gospel. Um, but maybe I can, I can just step back and, and fill in some sort of theological background to the already gospel foreground that you guys, that we guys, not you guys, we people are living. Um, and, and so a theology that has really been helpful for me in this construction process is process theology. Now, just on the inside, um, when you're from Canada, you don't talk about ice hockey you just call it hockey. Because there's really only one kind of hockey in Canada. Um, I find here in Southern California, people talk about ice hockey, but when you get on the inside of process theology, you, you drop the theology. So we're gonna be insiders this morning. We're not gonna talk about process theology, we're just gonna talk about process. It sounds kinda cool, doesn't it? We're gonna talk process. And process is this sort of big ethereal, can be abstract, thing which um, I want to bring to a place where we can actually practice it because I'm a practitioner of the faith. If Christianity isn't practical, then I don't think it has value. So, so let's talk about practical process theology. And let me start with a question. Is there anyone else here this morning who's absolutely exhausted of the post-election Facebook posts? about how it's, it's okay because God's in control. It's okay because God's sovereign, that God's will is being done, that, that somehow with, I'm Canadian, with your oh, president-elect, I'm just teasing. Tell you the truth, we have, it, I mean, as you see, this is going to affect the whole world. That's process theology is that this is going to impact everything. So, so are you exhausted of the, the posts on Facebook, this is God's in control, that somehow this president-elect is God's fault or God's doing? Because when you hear God is in control connected with something like this election result, is it just me or is there something about that that doesn't sit right? And it's not just in this election. It can be with anything that happens in the world, right? It was a year ago that the Paris attacks happened. Um, maybe it was, it's after an earthquake, or maybe it's when you first heard that the Brad and Angelina are done. You know, somebody inevitably will say, it's okay, God's in control, God's got a plan. And maybe it's not just on global things, but maybe it's like your personal life. Like you're in this dark space or maybe you've lost your job or maybe you've lost a relationship or diagnosed with an illness and some really, really well-meaning person who's trying to bring you hope and comfort and give you some, some meaning and context for it all says, it's okay, God's sovereign, God's got a plan, God is in control. It seems like the very moment we feel out of control or aren't sure what to make of something, we incite this narrative that says there's this great big super being somewhere beyond us who's causing this or allowing this for some greater good. It's the narrative of a controlling God. The technical term, and Aaron uses a lot, is it's a metaphysic. 
a way to interpret the world that has an all-powerful God standing outside of creation, controlling and micromanaging the events in creation. One theologian, a guy named R.C. Sproul, a reformed theologian, put it this way. I think the quote's up there, yeah. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will will ever be fulfilled. Like even if you travel 10 million light years away, that little speck of space dust is there only because God wants it to be there. Everything that happens is controlled and mandated by the divine. Is that really the way the world works? Is that really God's relationship to the world, the great controller, micromanager? And bringing it back to where we are this morning, do we really want to affirm that God controlled the outcome of the election? So here's the question I've been dying to shoot back on Facebook, but haven't done yet. Next time someone says, you know, well, God's in control and God's sovereign, you know, I, I, I want to ask, then why bother even having a democratic election? If God is in control, then we don't need to talk about democratic elections. We need to talk about theocratic coronations. And especially in the American system where there's two parties, like, why go through two years of campaigning and CNN pundits driving you nuts? Like, why not just get, you know, the two people in a room and literally flip a coin? Because if God is in control and is controlling the outcome of millions of people's votes, why not God controlling a coin toss? And there's actually a really great Bible verse for this, too. If you look at the end of Acts chapter 1, there's, um, they need a new apostle and they're trying to decide what they're going to do. I think we have it, we can put it on the screen. They're trying to decide who's going to be the new apostle. So they said, well, we're not sure what we're going to do. So, so they decide to roll a dice and determine who's going to be the new apostle, who's going to be the new leader. Why not just do that? You know why I cringe every time that I hear people say God is in control? This morning I want to give you four reasons why I think that is sort of cringeworthy, and it leads into this constructing a process theology. Four reasons. One, God is not in control. I reject that because one, the Holocaust. Two, Rwanda. And three, Syria. If God is controlling those events, if God's like ordaining that, and, and people might say, but there's a greater good and his ways are not our ways and we just got to hang on and we'll see it. I, I say, really? If, if God needs to kill six million people and genocides to get a greater good, then, then what kind of a monster is that? And some people will say, yeah, I know, but Trev, you're missing the point here. God's in control, but he pulls back some of his power. He's all powerful, but he pulls some of it back, and, and he allows us to make choices. He gives us some free will. He says, don't do that, but then he gives us the free will to make our choices, and if we do, then, then it's our fault, not God's, which I, I think is actually a really disturbing picture of God. I'm the father of three young kids, and um, say we're holidaying close to the Colorado River. 
and we're camped out there and I've told my kids countless number of times, don't go near the rapids, don't go near the rapids, don't go near the rapids. And because they're kids, they decide that they're gonna go near the rapids. And one of them gets swept up in the rapids and I'm sitting there having a, a cold pop or soda in, in, in my chair and, 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 and this kid goes flying away or floating away. Do I sit there and think, well, I was very clear with what my will was, what the bounds were. And they made that free choice. And even though I have the power to go rescue them and stop their suffering and stop their death, I'm not going to because, well, they made their choice. You would call child services on me, wouldn't you? I would be the worst dad in the world. If God could stop a genocide, a rape, an abuse, but just out of some principle decides not to, that's a God I reject. I suck at being a Baptist. Three reasons, or four reasons, why I can't buy into this notion of an all-controlling God. The Holocaust, Rwanda, Syria, and the fourth reason, which is, is going to lead into where we're going, is I believe that the core of our humanity defies the notion of an all-controlling God. The essence of our experience as human being contradicts it. When talking about humans, most people describe our species as human beings. You and I are commonly known as human beings, but I actually don't think that's the best description for who we are. Because as humans, we're never just being. There's never a single moment where all we do is be. To be human means we are in this constant state of becoming. For example, you will never be as old as you are right now. Every second you're alive, you are becoming older. You are constantly becoming hungry or full or tired or energized. We're becoming someone with slightly longer hair or less hair. We're learning, we're growing, our bodies are fighting viruses, we're digesting food, we're releasing melatonin or adrenaline. Some cells are dying, others are regenerating. To live as human is to never just be. In fact, the moment you're just being, the moment your, your heart stops and your brain waves stop functioning is the moment you're done. And even then, are you really just being because decomposition begins to kick in and you're not just human, you're starting to become dust and ash and earth and soil. To be human is to be in this constant state of becoming. So some people say, well, well then why don't we call ourselves human becomings? Which I think is closer, but I don't think it actually captures the full breadth of what's really taking place. Because the fact is, as we are always becoming something, we never do it in isolation. What we are becoming always happens in relationship with that which is beyond ourselves. You are always in relationship beyond yourself. So, for example, we like to think of ourselves as a body. Trevor Brisbane is one short, bald, out-of-shape body. Which isn't totally accurate, the short, bald, out-of-shape part is, but the one body isn't completely accurate. Our bodies are actually a complex relationship of cells and molecules and functions that result in our physical presence. We are not physically constituted by one body, 
but by billions of relationships and interactions. Make sense? The earth refuses to let us forget this fact that nothing in this world exists in isolation. Everything is always in relationship. You go to In-N-Out Burger and you're deciding as you idle there what you're gonna have. And as you do, your car spits out carbon, which traps UV light, which results in the surface of the earth slowly, over time, getting warmer, melting polar ice caps, causing coastal areas to flood, of course, causing disease and dysentery to the most poor and vulnerable people in the world. And our question as we sit in line is, do we want it regular or animal? Because everything is always connected. You've heard of chaos theory or the butterfly effect? A butterfly flutters its wings in Asia, igniting a monsoon in Mexico. It's a recognition that the world at its most primal essence, in its most primal level, is a complex entanglement of relationship and connection in which one impacts the whole and the whole impacts the one. You could say that the essence of material reality is relationship. Now this is super cool if you're anything like me and you come out of an evangelical background. Because for those of us who have been in an evangelical context for a long time, you know that the one thing evangelicals love to talk about, we love to talk about relationship. Right? All you need is a personal relationship. It's all about relationship. Well, process takes that literally and even one step further and says, it's not that you need a relationship, it's that who and what you are in essence is relationship. And if there's one thing that's the antithesis of good, healthy, life-giving, worthwhile relationship, it's someone who controls. You ever been in a controlling relationship? What was that like? The world isn't a specimen of divine control, but a beautiful mosaic of infinite relationship. There's the Twitter moment of the morning, all right? The world isn't a specimen of divine control, but a beautiful mosaic of infinite relationship. So we're not human beings, we're not just human becomings, we're human becomings with. We're humans who are becoming is always connected to the world, and the world's becoming is always connected to us. Now we get theological. Are you with me? Is that making sense? You're tracking? All right, get theological. Because if the essence of the world is this deep entanglement of relationship, if everything is influenced and impacted by others, what if God doesn't exist outside that entanglement, micromanaging it and existing impervious to it. But what if it all happens? What if it all lives and moves and has its being in God, in Christ, as the Apostle Paul would say? What if God doesn't exist outside of relational reality of the world, but insists right in the middle of it? What if our argument isn't for the existence of God, but the insistence of God? Classical notions of theology say God is the unmoved mover. 
That God is somewhere outside of creation and kind of put his finger on the world when he wants to and he can move the pieces around, the pieces of the, of the chessboard around. Process says God is inextricably entangled within creation in the cosmos where God impacts the world and God is impacted by the world. And if you can begin to imagine a God like that, then friends, you're doing process. So let's get practical. Christianity is fun to talk about, but if it isn't practical, it doesn't mean a thing. Let's talk about practical process theology. Where do we go with this? If God isn't controlling every molecule, it means molecules and birds and algae and elephants and the giraffe we're going to feed at the zoo and you and I have agency and novelty. Two big words in process. Agency, choice, and novelty. Like, like, we can actually generate, create something new or something novel. So classical notions of God, what I probably preached for far too long as a Baptist minister, was that the world kind of existed like this. This is, this is time. And what we would do as, as good Christians is, is we should figure out you know, what God wants to do, what happens next in our life, what event happens next, what God wants, what God's will is, and then sort of figure that out and just kind of go there. Like it's already mapped out in God's mind, so we just have to figure it out. We've got to discern what God's will is, and we've got to step into it. Or, or some people would say, um, you know, social scientists might say, you know, the next event is already determined in your life because if you were born with these genes or you're born into this kind of family or if you've had this experience, then the logical next step is this is going to happen to you, this, and it's already pre-programmed. So a lot of thinking about life and how the world works is this sort of linear this way. Process rejects that. Process, no, 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 there's agency and there's novelty. So we're at this moment this morning where you were lying in bed and you had a choice. It wasn't just like, okay, now I go to church. No, let's be honest, you had a choice. Do you stay in bed or do you get up? And if you stay in bed, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to sleep? You're going to watch a movie? You're going to read? What movie are you going to watch? You're going to watch this one, that one, that one, or that one? What book are you going to read? This one, that one, that one. Okay, but we're going to get out of bed, so we're going to get up. What are we going to do? Are we going to go for a hike? Where are we going to go for a hike? Monrovia, Sierra Madre, we're going to go down to the coast. Malibu, where are we going to go? Um, you're going to go for brunch? Where are you going to go for brunch? Which restaurant? What are you going to eat? You're going to go to church? What church? A good church? A bad church? Uh, evangelical? A Catholic? A, a radical church? Like, what kind of church? Are you? So all of a sudden, all these things start to sprout up where... It's not just what happens, but there's all kinds of things going on. And now, rather than God being like up here outside of it, all of this happens within God. Remember, it's all connected. It's all relationships. So, say you decide to go for brunch. You decide you're going to go to Santa Monica for brunch, and that's this option. Well, then you're going to meet people, you're going to have experiences, you're going to encounter things that, that, that send the trajectory of the world in one way and not another way. And because it's all happening in God, God isn't just sort of this, this definitive set reality, but is adjusting to our agency and novelty. 
the world adjusts to the choices that we make. And because the world is in God, God too is adjusting God's self within the choices that we make. I got a um, call this week from a friend that I hadn't talked to in 20 years. We worked together at a summer camp up in Canada. And um, he's a Canadian. He met an American woman, and now they're living in Portland. And um, he just wanted to talk because he saw some of my Facebook posts about what I'm going through theologically and what I'm constructing. So he wanted to just tap my shoulder and find out some more. And so we spent an hour and a half on the phone, and the first 20 minutes was just like we, we hadn't missed a, a moment. Do you have any friends like that? Or it doesn't matter how long it's been since you talked to them, but as soon as you see them or pick up the phone, it's like you're just, like, you just pick up where you left off. We were teasing each other, and you know, just, we were having a blast. But then after about 20 minutes of just kind of reminiscing old times and doing that, we started to talk about what's going on. Oh, you're married now. You've been married for 15 years. How many kids do you have? You have a mortgage. You have a job. You're, you know, you're 20 years on from when we were 20 years old. In, in one sense, my friend hadn't changed a bit. In, in, in one sense, my friend was the friend I had always known and, and, and I loved and I connected with. But on another se- in another sense, he was, he was completely different. I mean, when I knew him, we were you know, chasing girls and now we're both married. And we didn't have kids, we were kids and now we have kids. Like, so, so in a sense, there's the old Joel and then the new Joel. And I'm sure as he's talking to me, there's the old Trevor and the new Trevor. When you come to process, there's two natures or realities to God. And get your pens ready, because you use these words and it'll impress people. Process love big, fancy words. When you talk about God, there's this primordial nature to God. The God who is, is all, like Joel is still Joel even 20 years later. There's something about his personality, his voice, is just, is just him. Primordial nature. God is, is always good. God is always loving. God is always for justice and grace and, and, and those kind of things. The primordial nature. But then there's this consequent nature. Consequent nature of God. You know, primordial is like he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consequent is, is well... If the world's got true agency and novelty, and not just you and me, but like plants and animals, like, like God's not controlling where the bird flies. The bird can fly there, and if the bird flies there, that means you know, the bird's not pooping here on your car, and if the bird doesn't poop on your car, it means you don't have to go get the car washed so you have that 10 minutes. Like it just, it changes everything. I just made that up on the fly there. That wasn't. And, 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 and so, so, so how God responds, reacts, calls, loves within the world that we're participating and creating isn't defined. It's consequent. It has its consequences in the agency that you and I and the molecules and, and everything in creation has. Does that make sense? So it's not... God's got it, this box, and we got to stay in it. It's like God is, is, is adapting and, and changing. And, and so, so, you know, we need to do that which is good. Well, doing that which is good if we make this choice looks different than that which is good if we make this choice. And in fact, if we have genuine agency and novelty, maybe we get to decide and have agency over what is good. Because maybe it's, it's, it's something that hasn't even happened yet. Um, 
So where, this, where the rubber meets the road on this, and let me, let me just, because I don't want to go too long here. How process has changed me from what I would have preached five years ago. Five years ago, I would have preached a sermon about, hey, if you don't like the results of the election, or if you're having a bad day, if you've lost your job, if you've lost a relationship, it's okay, because we know the end of the story and it's a happy ending. And Jesus comes back on a horse and sets everything right. Process theology says, I don't think it happens that way. I don't know, we don't know how it happens because we get to create it. It's not dictated or imposed on us from an external God onto us, but it is a God who calls us and lures us into a, a, a life and a trajectory of hope where we get to create the goodness and the justice. And, and as you can see, we are very capable of creating the opposite of that. But if you want to talk about eschatology or what happens at the end, it isn't written. It's in process. It's happening now, and we get to participate in it. So here's where the good news is. If you feel terror or anxiety or fear over the results of an election, if you fear or feel despair or hopelessness or isolation in the loss of a job, if you feel regret or sorrow or hopelessness and darkness in whatever the situation is, the next move isn't predetermined. The next move is yours. The next move is mine. It means there is genuine creativity and novelty even with this president-elect. Just because he might have some different ideals, and I'm not going to get political, but different ideals than probably most of us in the room, it doesn't mean... Yeah, yeah, he, he has agency and he influences the whole, but friends, so do you and so do I. And we're not going to just sit back. The gospel of Jesus Christ is we will not just sit back and let empires do their thing. We will not just sit back and let, and let despair and hopelessness and, 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 and bullies have their way. Because the choices we make every moment of our lives depends on how this story and how this thing goes. And I think that's worth giving your life to. I think that's worth something to live for. And that's why process is helpful for me. So. So, having said that, I got a text from my mentor yesterday, my process mentor, PhD guy, who said, I think I'm gonna give up on process. <laughs> I think he was joking. Um, yeah, Any, anything, clarity, or just you see an insight that, that I missed, or, or, or uh, oh, it, wow, if, if, if you, you said that, and then that means this, and, and yeah. 
Well, just one thought that comes up is this term that I use called spiritual bypass, where, like what you described, where it's like, oh, everything's going to be okay, or I don't really um, want to go there, so I'm just going to go to this elevated, lofty space of, oh, I'm just love, and it's all right, it's all good, and let's not get dramatic, and let's not, let's not cause dissension, and bring up all this negativity. And to me, that's spiritual bypass, and so I really resonate with what you're saying. And um, in my own processes of healing, it wasn't just me going, oh, you know what, I'm going to go to this really loving place and just go, okay, those behaviors aren't really great for me, so I'm just going to stop doing them. It was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of tears. It was a lot of processing, yeah. a lot of working my process, and that was work. And so to me, what I'm hearing you say is um, process theology, which is a very you know, fitting word, is working your process. And um, to me, spiritual bypass ends up with actually a lot of meaninglessness because then you're just floating around acting like you're a saint or a Buddha, and why are you here? It's kind of like, okay, I mean, I think there is a really big power in like being a neutral presence of love, like standing in the middle of a protest, for example, and instead of having anger, like really grounding in your loving and being a presence of a different kind of energy, but that's different from spiritual bypass, where it's just like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to even show up to the rally. I'm not going to even get off my couch or, or say something back to this person who is completely attacking somebody. Um, so I really appreciate your message because just the other day I was asking my roommate here, like, man, like, I want to send my brother love and light, and I'm doing that, but this is just, it's, it's like wrong. I mean, not wrong in like the sense of I'm making him wrong, but just I can't stand by and watch bullying happen. And I don't want to enable bullying, and I don't want to make it okay. And I think a lot of what has happened is there is, like you said, everybody's in relationship to something, and we're all in relationship with this whole situation, and someone has kind of opened the bullying door and just said, it's okay. And I think a lot of people then jumped in. Um, so anyway, I just really appreciate what you're saying, and it feels a lot more purposeful in this lifetime to actually get involved, be engaged, and then try to just, as much as possible, put it through the filter of love so that it's not adding to the sum total of hate, but still doing something. Yeah, I think, thank you, I think you're absolutely right. And this is why, you know, Aaron, who sort of tends to, I think, identify more as a radical theology guy, um, and I tend to identify a little bit more as a process guy, but they're really, they're really cousins, because at the end they get to the same place of, you know, we can't wait for the, the big bean in the sky to fix this, game on now. So.
Thanks, Trevor. I just have a quick question for you and anyone else here. Um, being that we didn't have a lot of time to, you know, probe the depths of this idea, would you recommend a primer of sorts? Uh, oh, yeah. Any, you know, that, that's just a good, yeah. Yeah, great question. You know, honestly, so I'll give you two, kind of one sort of more popular level, but is just really, really good, is Thomas Ord's got a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God. Um, Thomas is trying to stay in this sort of, sort of evangelical camp and yet do process. Um, there's another guy named Hartshorn, um, I forget his last name, Hartshorn, um, called Om Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. And um, that's kind of like this, it's a little more academic, but it's not a big book. It's just a little more technical, but it's either one or both would just, you know, really, really helpful. Yeah, Thomas Ward, um, Uncontrolling Love of God, and Hart Shorn. I think it's H-A-R-T-S-H-O-R-N-E. Um, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. Um, hey, Trevor, thank hey. you for speaking and your little graphic representation up there. It's, it's pretty powerful. It's very powerful. <laughs> um, I, I actually texted this question. Sorry to make you type it out, Angie, but I'm just going to ask it. Um, how does process theology sort of react to, do, does process theology disavow all forms of strong intercession? How would it react to all those verses like he will command his angels concerning you in any sort of sense that we have from from scriptures of of intercession yeah that's a really good question there is a um marjorie sue hockey um wrote a book on process and prayer i, I forget the name of it um but sue hockey if you want to look her up it's it, it doesn't answer all the questions for me um but i think it's a good place to start um, pr process and prayer, um, it's, sorry, what was your name? Mandy? Mandy said something, you wanted to send goodness and light or something to your brother. And I think process would sort of identify with that language a little bit more than sort of classical, um, you know, if we pray, we're going to change God's mind, and then God will. You know the story of the, the widow and the judge, that parable Jesus tells about how there's this you know, judge, and, and this widow comes and begs and begs and begs him, and he won't change his mind. So, but she keep the persistent window, but she keeps going at him, and finally he relents and gives in to her. I think often that's how we think of prayer. Like if we just kind of nag God enough, then he'll sort of acquiesce to what we want. As I've done here before, I think what we need to do is, is flip that parable around and see the judge is more like us. We're the ones who are judged. We're the ones with the agency. And God's the one who's calling us, pleading with us, luring us to choose that which is just and right and true. So rather than us pleading with God to do the right thing, I think God is pleading with us to do the right thing. To keep going, there is um, an experiment YouTube. Um, YouTube search Dr. Masaru Emoto, and I can hand you the name, M-A-S-A-R-U Emoto, E-M-O-T-O. -O. Um, he's a scientist and a photographer, and what he does is he exposes water particles to words and prayers and blessings. 
and he, he, you know, you say goodness or love to this water particle, and he takes a picture of it, and it looks like this beautiful snowflake. But then he says things like Adolf Hitler to the water, and it looks like this shriveled mass. And it's like, it's like our words actually impact creation. Why is it still a noble thing to say grace before a meal? You know, God's not going to give you stomach flu if you don't, or food poisoning if you don't. But I think something actually happens, um, you know, it's connected. So, you know, positive energy, that, I, I, don't, I don't have it all figured out. But I, I do think that, I know that if I were to say to you, hey, you look fantastic in that sweater, you're rocking that sweater today. Your demeanor is going to be different than if I said, really, you wore that? Like, words actually have power. And so I think when we pray, I actually think there's something happening. I don't think God suspends our agency and just, you know, fixes it all and overpowers us, but I think something happens. Hey, hey Trev, can I ask, ask you to speak to process theology in relationship to the cross? Because I see so much there within the, the core of, you know, the Christian narrative of the cross and the resurrection. How do you see process, um, I guess, uh, how, how do you read the cross through the lens of process? Thank you. I think the process, uh, the cross preaches process. I think what the cross does is Jesus hangs on the cross. Um, uh, you know, so the reason why I had to leave my church at the end of the day is because in a talk, I answered the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And my response was, he didn't. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to die to enact forgiveness or anything like that. God's heart has always been forgiveness for us. Um, so when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think Jesus is modeling for us a way to live you know, the choice we should always make, the agency and the novelty can actually come in the direction of justice and hope in this world when we choose forgiveness over violence, when we choose, you know, love over empire and, and power over other people. So I, I think ultimately what the cross is, is this sort of revelation that God has only ever always been for us. And so now let's choose the way of forgiveness, the way of self-sacrificial love, the way of death rather than killing. Um, let me ask you this about the cross, because I, I don't know a lot about process, but I do feel like this, this God that we find in the midst of the processes of the universe and our lives is, is the same God that we find in the cross, the God who suffers with us in the yeah, world, this yeah. God that isn't distant and far removed, but a God that allows himself to, to be in the world or that doesn't allow himself, but rather or herself, but this idea that we find God in the midst of life itself suffering what we suffer. Is that process? That's process. I think the incarnation is process, right? Where, where God is a part of creation. Um, yeah, like I, I, I think Christianity, now there's process Buddhists and process Muslims, and, and, and so process is this overarching thing, but I think the Christian tradition has this really unique, I, I, opportunity to, to kind of speak hope into this world. So, yes, I won't go into another sermon there. No problem. All right, maybe one more question. Um, okay, two more. Barrage, you're next. Hey, thanks for your message. It's really Love great. Love the haircut, my friend. Thank you. I'm with you. Um, 
So I find, uh, I was thinking, you know, I think process sounds very uh, empowering if, uh, if you're like me, uh, who is uh, an American and a white male and has a lot, you know, I feel like oh, I do have agency, you yes. know, I have a decent job and everything and I probably could make a difference. And so I like the message of yeah. it's on you, not on somebody else. But I can't help to think about some people in the world who feel they do not have agency. They're on the wrong end of the economic spectrum or the wrong, uh, the wrong minority group in the location where they are, where you say, no, no, there is no one out there that's going to help you. You got to do it yourself. And they go, oh my gosh, the weight of yeah. that is overwhelming. And I, they break down and I think they start to turn for like a liberation theology or turn to yeah. another way of viewing God. Um, how does process help a person like that? Yeah. I, so first, Alfred White Northhead, who is a mathematician who kind of is the, the big poobah of process. Everybody always quotes Alfred White North, Alfred North Whitehead. And he says that oppression is the removal of creativity in another person's life. So who, if you're, who is an oppressed person? Someone who has creativity or agency or novelty removed from them. So, so ab, like, you, I think you're bang on, that's the thing. The truth is though, even, in, you know, even for an oppressed person, they still have agency. You know, Whitehead would say, even a bird has agency, even my dog has agency, like every, even a molecule has agency. So, you know, the oppressed person does have agency. Um, the, the lure of God, that's, or the call of God in process, is always toward complexity and creativity. So what Whitehead would say is that, and I think maybe what Jesus would say as well, is that then our role as Christians is to use our agency and novelty to create a world where others have as much creativity and agency as possible. So the goal is to maximize creativity in the world. Um, and I'm not an oppressed person, obviously, so I, you know, there's actually quite a bit of work done. My, the person who um, introduced me to process is Monica Coleman, who's a, um, um, an African-American woman who struggles, it, she's got a new book out with bipolar, and she, I mean, when she talks process, you just, you just shut up and listen, right? Um, but there's some really great, um, sort of more marginalized voices in on the conversation who could speak to it way better than I could. However, that being said, the, the goal is, the lure of God is still towards creativity. Um, hi, so my question was, I, so it seems like process hinges on denying theological determinism, yeah. but if what we know given science and physics, if there is a physical determinism, you know, is, does that undermine the agency and novelty? It, it would. So I, I think process would say there isn't a physical determinism. Um, although it might feel like that, like, you know, th these things are determined to happen. Um, I think, you know, process would say, no, there, there's still agency even on the molecular level. Yeah, and is, but my, so my follow-up is, isn't that something that should be in the realm of science and empirical evidence, not really theological question? And this is why I'm so compelled by process, is because process doesn't want to take, you got religion or theology and science and philosophy, it's, it's the attempt to sort of 
bring, so there's actual correspondence between our theology and our science in our empirical world. So rather than saying, hey, I believe that the world was created in six literal days because I believe it, and now let's go find the science to prove that, which some people do, um, process is a working of, okay, what's science saying? And now what does this mean for my theology? Which I think has better correspondence, better legitimacy for the world. No, that, that definitely, I just, so, okay. It just seems, from what I know in the scientific community, most physicists would affirm determin physical determinism. And that's out of my, that's out of my realm. Yeah, I, I think I get, I think I get what you're saying. Here's the scientist. I'll try, I'll try to be quick. Um, I was going to say that I think science actually affirms this. Um, so kind of um, to answer your question. So if we look, um, that diagram is actually something very similar I draw to the family tree where every living organism is connected on a molecular level. So the um, exact same gene that makes our hands is the same gene that makes um, a fish's fin. So it's the exact same gene. It's just like a, a tiny switch um, in a certain place that makes one a fin and one a hand. So you have that kind of relatedness. But I think with evolution and, and nature, um, there isn't, you can't determine. Um, there's, there's mutations that happen randomly. Um, you can't control it. So you can't ever know even when you look, um, for example, two people, two animals are going to have a baby. You can't determine what that's going to look like. You have a probability, like with the Punnett square. So there's a lot of different options. So I think that um, trying to, to determine or, or, or say something is going to have the outcome. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, if scientifically if that really would happen. And I know that there's a theory, I don't know what the theory is called, but um, so it's with physics though, and it's when you actually look at something, it changes the outcome of it. Yeah, yeah, if you're observing it versus not observing it, it'll actually be different. So that I think is really good evidence of, of process. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, hey, preach it. <laughs> I, and, right. and this is it. I mean, the good thing about process is, you know, we can say, well, all right, if that doesn't work. My, my Monica Coleman, um, my prof, says, in process, what you want to do is you want to take the plane off and you want to see where it lands. And if it doesn't land well there, well, then take off and try somewhere else. It's a sort of exploration of, uh, you know, we have novelty. So, hey, if that doesn't work, then let's try this. Um, rather than, you know, it's got to be this way. Thank you, Trevor. Hey, Thank please. you. It's deep stuff, right, guys? <laughs> <laughs>